Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, Pod Sequentialism, of course, grew out of the Pop Sequentialism exhibitions and uh, book and blog. And we've recently relaunched the Pop Sequentialism website. So if you want to go and visit Pop Sequentialism, you can do so. If you want to follow us on social media, we are at Pod Sequentialism, and that's on. Uh, Facebook, and I think we're at PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q, on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we also want to talk about uh, Gallery 30 South, which is uh, my new gallery out in Pasadena with my wife, and we want you to visit La Luz de Jesus Gallery and the Soap Plant Wacko Superstore over in Los Feliz and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you. So this is kind of a really, a really cool episode. I think this is actually the 75th episode that we've taped, and it may run slightly out of order. But um, my guest today is Antonio Palaio. And um, why I'm having Antonio on, for a couple reasons actually, is that he's a very, very gifted illustrator, and we've had him in several shows over the years at La Luz de Jesus. And it's funny because I used to see... I used to see Antonio come in and we'd talk about stuff. And I just, I wasn't even sure if you were just somebody who came to the shows or if you were somebody who was an artist. <laughs> and as it turned out, you were both. But um, Antonio's been at Disney now for how many years? 24. Holy mackerel. You're like creeping up on, on a really big anniversary here. Yeah, yeah. Quarter century. 20, 25. And when you first got hired, you got hired as an inker. Right. Now, um, we're going to kind of roll into exactly what it is that Antonio does because it's changed significantly over the years. And I think it'll be fascinating to people to understand how animation, which is something that I, I think people either have absolutely no idea how it works or they think they're pretty up on things. And I think that they'll be surprised how different animation is now than what we thought of animation just you know 10 15 years ago so how did you get hired at disney to make a long story short mm -hmm. um at, right out of high school i um i was in in the middle of deciding to what college to go to and i wanted to study computer animation mm -hmm. or something to, to do with art mm -hmm. I, I i was like i did not know what i wanted to do but i knew that i wanted to go to school for art now we're going to make people figure out how old you are what year was this uh 90 92 92 yes a few yeah. years younger than me and yeah. so in, in 92 to give people some perspective, that's right around the time that Lawnmower Man came out. So computer animation was starting to really happen in Hollywood in in a way that was a little bit more than say like the Mind's Eye and some like the experimental video um, computer animation that people were familiar with. And that's probably right around the time that T two came out as well, right? Ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. Yeah. And um so it would have been a pretty big buzzword at the time, computer animation. I'm sure that the art schools were starting to advertise it as a major. But what was it that made you wanna go in that direction? I, I I'm a huge uh video game um fan. Of course. So yes. Uh, I was leaning towards that and for the same reason, you know, everything was going that way mm -hmm. rather than traditional animation. Um, so that's why. Nice. Yeah. And so you, you're looking for something to do mm -hmm. and you're trying to decide what you're going to do in college and what yeah. happens. Um, then I go to Apple One mm -hmm. and I tell them, look, I'm not looking for anything permanent. Just give me some side jobs. And explain what Apple One is to people. Apple One is a, a work agency. Okay. And it's in Glendale on Colorado, right across from the gal uh, Glendale Galleria. Right, right. So they, yeah. they're like a, a temp employment agency that does job exactly. placement. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But they all they do get uh, permanent jobs. Right. Which in my case, it turned out, a five-day gig turned out to be 24-year job. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So you go to them, you, you give them a kind of a basic idea what you're looking for and what do they, what do they hit you with first? Uh, they got me a job at Bank of America mm -hmm. and that was like three weeks mm -hmm. and it was easy stuff. Yeah. But I made good money cause I was working tr uh, double overtime. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second job was at a warehouse doing easy stuff as well. And it was like five days. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, they called me up and uh, the lady's like, yeah, we got you a gig at Disney. It's, it's easy stuff. Um, and it was like two minutes away from my house yeah. in Glendale. So I'm like, perfect. All right, cool. So I didn't think anything of it. 
because my dream of working for Disney mm -hmm. has been since I was little. Yeah. I used to drive around the lot on my bike and imagine myself working for Disney. Because you grew up over there. And this is this is a really funny thing, too. So this is also a very kind of this is a very Disney story because yeah. you've got and this is not just a local boy makes good type story, mm -hmm. but that you were growing up around Glendale and Burbank in child travel proximity right. to what was to all children in the 70s, like mm -hmm. the Dream Factory, the right. Walt Disney Company. And, of course, back then also, you know, Lucasfilm was out in Culver City before mm -hmm. they moved. Mm -hmm. And I can't even conceive of that. You know, growing up in north of Boston where we had a very different kind of idea about what the trajectory of our lives were going to be, uh, film was so foreign to us and how it was made that but you worked you lived around it yeah and so a little bit of that mystique is peeled back but more possibility is injected right because you see people getting out of their cars walking into, into the walt disney company so mm -hmm. you can see that people actually work there like right. it's it's this it's not an abstract concept it's, it's this, right there. this thing that you can do mm -hmm. So you you get this call from from the employment agency and they're like, hey, we're gonna we want to send you over to Disney. What they tell you the job was gonna be? And they said it's just like inventory stuff, right? And and it ended up being uh, for a division called Art Classics. Mm -hmm. So they were handling the TV animation cell mm -hmm. department. It just started, right? Um, so when I started working in that department well those five days i was supposed to just be there for five days mm -hmm. i got to know some some of the co-workers and uh one of the guys told me oh they're they're starting an inking department mm -hmm. and i'm like what's that and then he showed me what it was and it was basically repairing the ink lines of the character because they were falling off on the actual cells on the actual cell those cells were made with an actual xerox camera but um for some reason, those lines eventually started falling off. Mm. So um, animation cells eventually became fine art. Yeah. And at that time, when I got hired, it was beginning to get really hot. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the cell sales market started to really explode in the early 90s. 95, it was super hot. I remember like, uh, When You Wish Upon a Star, that gallery yeah, yeah. was huge. They were doing tremendous business. They had mm -hmm. um, one location on the Third Street Promenade, I think. Right. I remember buying like a Disney, a, a Bambi um, mechanical. Mm -hmm. So the drawing behind the cell, which in, in Japanese animation we call a duga, mm -hmm. but um, that the drawing that then the vinyl would be, or the, the acetate would be put on top of and then drawn over the pencils, and then that cell would go to the next person who might color, and then the mm -hmm. next person who would put it in front of a background and then to the camera, right? you know, and add as many steps as necessary depending upon how many characters are on that one that one, so. one of 24 shots in, yeah. in a minute. Mm -hmm. And so... They had gone to output to ink from a, a Xerox machine that would press directly onto the acetate in the early 90s, mm -hmm. which sped up the process. And there was also a conversation about the budgets on animation coming into question because there were so many studios in Asia that um, Japanese and Korean studios were affecting the budget for American animators there were also a series of strikes in animation in the early 90s because of Klasky Kazupo and other companies that were in Hollywood mm -hmm. that were getting into scuffles over overtime hours and, and, and kind of cheating the animators a little bit. Yeah, I think I can say that without threat of a lawsuit. That was in the mm -hmm. Hollywood Reporter in the day <laughs> and in Variety. But also that um, to keep the budget down, to keep work in America, like there was a really important... I guess philosophy at especially Disney who are very cognizant of this and, and more so than perhaps all of the other studios that Disney is an American product that gets sent worldwide and so they wanted to keep as much of that employment in the United States to make it a, hol a holistically and, and wholly um, not, not ho we're recording an Easter Sunday it's not, not saying holy like you know religious but um, WH holy uh, American product so I can see them going to a technology that would make it a little bit less expensive mm -hmm. and then realizing 
the technology isn't quite there yet. We're still going to need somebody to come in here and fix the little peccadillos and mistakes that this process makes because until they found a way to treat that acetate for the ink to take better, mm-hmm. it would fall off. Yeah. And I've seen some of those cells back in the mm-hmm. day. And that's also when they started the Seracel market, started yes, to really take exactly. off in the U.S. Exactly. So you get called in and having no experience, having None. done this before, um, how many people were in the department at that time? Um, our classics, I think it, I think they probably had like 80, 80 people. 80 people. 80. And it was growing and it, was, yeah. and it grew... To hundreds of people, because TV is a is a quick turnaround. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of episodes. So you're not talking about just working on a feature, and features would have a finite amount of time, and it would get spread out. But specifically, would they working on like Tiny Tunes and uh, stuff like that? The main one that they're working on was Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh, yeah. right? I would say I would say. 80% of what we worked on when I got hired there was all Winnie the Pooh. So Mike Royer was probably over there at that time, yeah, too, exactly. doing a lot of illustration. Exactly, yeah. I still have, I mm-hmm. think, some piglet drawings that yeah. I got from, from Mike back in probably Comic-Con 93 <laughs> or 94. Oh, my gosh. This, this is, like, right around the same time. Yeah, yeah. And so you got 80 people in the department, and someone's like, hey, new kid, come over here. This is how we do this. Yeah, basically. <laughs> they sit you down, and they're like, here's a brush. No, ink paint. Uh, actually, rapidograph. A rapidograph. Was, oh, they were using yeah. rapidographs. So you've, you've, you're tracing the drawing to the left and it's p- outputting on the right or the opposite? No, it was actually the cell. I was, I was repairing the actual line work. So we wow. weren't tracing. So you see, you see the character and yeah. parts of the line were falling off. Mm-hmm. So we go in there and then connect them. With a rapidograph? With a rapidograph. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it gives you the, a really a better level of detail, but I always think of rapidograph as a technique that you use to kind of trace and output to a second, yeah. a second piece of paper. Which, which you can and yeah. do, yeah. That's but in, in that case, in, in the case of those uh, pieces, we were using the rapidograph for that. Wow. And so how thick a point were these? Because some were thick and some were thin. Mm-hmm. As you know, uh, one of the characteristics of, of Disney inking is... Mm-hmm. They they've known they're known for creating thick and thick and thin lines. Yeah, and different color lines. Yes, and that's one of the things that Walt Disney wanted to do with animation. He wanted to be different. Yeah, if you compare uh, Warner Brothers with Disney, you know, you look at Warner Brothers animation, all their lines are black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, just, there's a hard outline and everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. And so, first day. Well, so the guy's telling me, look, they're going to start an inking department. I told him, oh, show me what it is. So mm-hmm. he's, you know, repairing some lines. I'm like, dude, I can do that. Yeah. And, and he's like, why? He's like, well, you know, I've been drawing since I was a kid, so I think I can do that. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, all right, well, go talk to our boss, which his name was Steve Wetzel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to him and I told him, hey, Steve, you know, I hear you guys are starting an, ink, an inking department. Mm-hmm. I'm an artist and I'd, I'd like to try out. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, all right. And he's like, we are looking for people. I'm like, all right, cool. So then uh, the next day it came in, they laid out some Winnie the Pooh cells mm-hmm. and I inked them with the rapidograph. With the rapidograph. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, dude, this look great. You're hired like that. <laughs> so I was the first one they hired. Yeah. Um, Squeaky and- Will gets the grease. This is, this is very, very important for anybody who is, you know, as I always say, and I remind people every episode, and they're probably tired of hearing it, but um, ostensibly I hope it's why they listen to the show, that the DIY aesthetic is strong here at Pod Sequentialism. And part of doing it yourself is, you know, making people aware that you're there. Mm-hmm. And I, I always warn people at art school, if they've got questions, you know, you're paying a lot for an education, ask questions, bug the teacher. Yeah. You know, it's like if you bug them and they give you a bad grade, complain to the, the chair, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the department chair. But their job as a teacher is to teach you. And when you're not in a school environment, you have to be somewhat assertive. Right. Not necessarily aggressive, but assertive. If you want something, you have to let people know that that's something that you want. And you're a case in point. It's yeah. like, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to do that. Yeah. Nobody else. There's, there's a room for 79 other people in that it's, room. And they're just all just heads down looking at the board. And you're thinking, wow, this is something I want. And they hire you first. And that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean... Uh, Usually stuff is not going to come to you. Yeah. Like you say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, we won't get into that whole law of attraction, uh, philosophy that's been, that's been floating out there for about 
10 or 15 years via things like The Secret. Mm-hmm. And it, there may be aspects of truth to that, but I, you can't just wait. Yeah. You have to, you know, you got to wave your hand in the air for, to get noticed and, and hopefully follow up and follow up and pester. Because I do believe in the law of attraction and mm-hmm. I do believe that that is the reason why I got that job at Disney. I got, I do believe that the, the, the opportunity was presented to me. Yes. But it was up to me to, you know, okay, it's here. Bingo. Do, yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. You, you, you're not born a magnet. Yeah. Exactly. No, you, you have to kind of like you put your hand in the air. Yeah. And I, I know what you're saying and I, I, I tend to subscribe to that philosophy mm-hmm. too. But I think that a lot of people are just like, Oh, you see it in colleges. Oh, I got my degree. Where's my job? Did you apply? I I, I run an art gallery. Yeah, I see it all the time. Mm-hmm. You you've seen me at the at the openings, and I'll, yeah. I'll walk up to somebody and say, "Oh yeah, you should totally submit." And they never do. Never do. This is the the guy who's they're going to give them a job. Yeah, saying I want to see what you've got. Send it to me, mm-hmm. and they never do. And you know, I I was guilty of that for a certain amount of time. You know. Um, especially back in, in Massachusetts and before I came out to California, but also when I was here that I think that I felt like it's not exactly what I want it to be yet. And so I don't want to show anybody. And of course, how's it going to get better if you don't show it to somebody who tells you what's wrong with it? Right. A lot of that was ego. Clearly, my name's on the name of the show here. <laughs> but um, we're going to take a little quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into how you went from being the first employee in the inking department at Disney to the only employee at the um, inking department at Disney. So uh, we're going to take a little break and hear from one of our sponsors, which is my um, my time to remind people that you too can reach this prime demographic. Get in touch with us. Send an email to info at popsequentialism.com. Reach out to us on our social media at, at podsec or at podsequentialism and get in touch with us and we will uh, give you some of the advertising rates and you can talk to our people. So right back in about 60 seconds. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host Matt Kennedy. I have with me today Antonio Palayo, who is the, at at Disney. He's um, currently in the 24th year of um, of his employment at Disney in the inking department and other things, which we're going to get to. Mm-hmm. So from that first day and getting the sort of the audition, the tryout to go from being a temporary employee into being the first person hired at the at the inking department, uh, how? How have things changed? How did your position change? And what are some of the highlights in that time? Well, um, it changed a lot because, well, the, the department that I was hired, it was called uh, Art Classics. Art Classics, that, yes. That department does not exist anymore. Gone. It's gone. So I was there for about seven months. Mm-hmm. And then the original ink and paint department needed inkers. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere on the planet where they teach inking. Right. They knew about our department. Mm-hmm. So they said, okay, you know, let's go check them out, see if, they, if they're good enough so we can get a few inkers. Mm-hmm. So they came over. They brought their top inker to uh, check out everybody's work. What was that person's name? Um, Do you remember? What is it? But basically the Terry Austin of yeah, Disney Animation. she was the master inker wow. back in those days. Her name will come to me. Yes. Um, so she, her and, and our boss, Sherry uh, McGowan, mm-hmm. came over. I should say the Marie Severin of Disney Animation. Yeah. <laughs> so what they did, they tested about 30 of us. Mm-hmm. And it was it was actual inking. That we're not doing with Rapidograph anymore. We're actually using the traditional... Uh, dip pens yep. and they gave us some images to ink and we all did it they took all that work you know we all you know put our names on on the pieces mm-hmm. they took all that work she studied it and then they picked out one guy they picked out one guy that i had taught how to ink wow. so what happened is i was the first inker that, that i was that was hired in in our classics and then i became kind of good at it mm-hmm. that they made me uh, the instructor kind of like the instructor the trainer the trainer yeah. yeah so all the new all the new people that would come i would sit sit, sit them down and train them how to ink in a way you've got to be like damn you know i trained somebody to, to well, get a job that i wanted but it's got to be a sense of pride too like wow i trained that guy so good that he's the first guy that gets hired that's awesome yes and no mm-hmm. i was i was bummed out that i yeah. i wasn't picked but this is what happened i because they made me the trainer i stopped inking mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of lost the touch. Gotcha. So then I told my boss, I'm like, 
um, is there a chance they're, they're going to come back and pick up more people? And he said, yes. I'm like, all right, dude, I want to step down and I want to go back to inking. Mm-hmm. He's like, that's a good idea, dude. Yeah. So he, I went back to inking and yeah, three months later, they come back, mm-hmm. tested us again and they picked out me and another guy. That's cool. So then boom, I'm, I'm in ink paint now. Nice. My dream came true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what was some of the first projects you worked on over there? The very first project at the Disney ink and paint was a Mickey Mouse and a Goofy cell. Mm-hmm. And it was very boring because I worked on the same image for like six months. <laughs> it was super boring. Do you have one of them? I don't have one of them. Oh, that's no. a bummer. That's but a it, bummer. it was the, the most excruciating yeah. thing I did because it was so boring. It was so easy. And then after that, then they started giving me more difficult cells and then mm-hmm. it became fun. So now you know what it's like to be a Chinese factory painter. Yeah, exactly. And now they also, at a certain point in the late 90s, I believe, Disney started to outsource some stuff uh, interestingly left to Mexico. And one of the companies that had been previously working for Filmation, I think this might have been for, um, not for American product, but product that they produce for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So it might not even really have necessarily the Disney name on it, but Disney owns a lot of companies. Oh, yeah. And so um, I think Jose Rodolfo Luisa Ontiveros got an early job at one of those places, and he had fallen in love with Disney, and now he's like the guy that paints Disney stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure if I should say that for lawsuit reasons, but um, he's most of his work sells to Disney employees. Right. So now, after getting through that eight or nine-month route of working on a Mickey Mouse uh, and, and Goofy cell... And becoming, you know, working on a lot of other stuff. How, when did the changes start to happen where the the department started to get smaller and smaller and smaller? Right away. Wow. Right away. So back in the 90s, like in the early 90s. I I started working at that department uh, September of 93. Mm -hmm. Within six months, the first layoff came. And they let go of two people. And right, right from that minute, the the talks about closing out the department started. Wow. So imagine I've been through 24 years of, oh, they, they might close us out. Constantly. Constantly. It is, you've never, for a guy with job security, you've never had job security. Never, never. Amazing. And it was very easy to do because back in those days, Michael Eisner was running the company. Right. And he was all about, you know, if this department's not making us money. Bottom line. We're yeah. cut. It doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. Um, the reason why we we're still there is because Roy Disney stepped in. Roy and, three, right? Yeah. Yeah. He told Michael, do not touch ink and paint. Yeah. Once you get rid of that department, you're cutting the legacy of the company. Yeah. Because we are the only division of the entire company that's still in the same exact real estate yep. since 1940. Wow. And it's still in function and it's still doing the same thing since 1940. Since Fantasia. Yeah, since Pinocchio. Pinocchio. My favorite Disney film, actually. Yeah. Pinocchio, from Pinocchio to Little Mermaid, Mm -hmm. all those films were inked and painted in my department, and all the paints were created. Wow. And we're still there. So that's the reason why Roy Disney stepped in and told Michael Eisner, do not touch ink and paint. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're alive. Because we're... We've never been a department that's made a lot of money for the company. Right. I think at some point it did when I first started working there because we were uh, recreating some of uh, some of the cells and then we would put them together with the actual background, the original background. And th- these pieces were sold at Sotheby's for fifty, a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. We did that for a while, and we were selling a lot of animation art. Right. But it started it started going down. So this is before the Saracels. I think it's just at the same time this when Saracels came. They were kind of, that's a weird thing. Like I don't know that, that people that bought those necessarily knew that these were repainted cells on the original backgrounds. Right. It's kind of fishy. But it's amazing practice. Mm-hmm. Another guy I know named Ken who was um a lead animator on Several of the films that came out in the 90s and 2000s, I know he worked on Emperor's New Groove and he worked on, um, because he worked with Gerald Scarfe, who had done the animation of Pink Floyd, The Wall, Mm -hmm. was the um, animation director, not the film director, but the animation director for Emperor's New Groove. And so everybody was super excited because they're like, oh, wow, this is like the most avant-garde animator that we could ever work with producing one of the least successful, you know, Disney features of that era. And... 
he was constantly getting hired and fired that um there was not only was there no job security but that the the expense that eisner was overseeing and that carried over a little bit into the administration that followed him was a bottom line of payroll tax health care like all that stuff that um none of the animators ever had as much job security as a guy in a costume at the park. Right. And so when you start to see the landscape change, and as you've said, you've been seeing it for 24 years now, um, once you hear that Roy the Third has kind of put his foot down um, and that they're going to leave you guys alone, you, that must have felt like, well, at least there's a little, there's a little bit more concrete... There's a little hope. Yeah, yeah. And so, and that has basically withstood the test of time, knock on wood, you know. So, how did it change from that point? So, Eisner is, is out shortly thereafter. Yeah, he's out. So, that made that made our department feel better. Yeah. Michael Eisner's now, because he was just cutthroat. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, we, we had a little bit more confidence, but it was still there. Yeah. At that point, the department went from like 60 people mm -hmm. down to, it's four of us now. Yeah. It's only two artists, uh, Jim that runs the paint lab and our boss. Wow. So it's only two artists. So the department went from, you know, 1940 having hundreds and hundreds of inkers and painters. Right. Now we're down to one inker and one painter. Wow. And me and her do, do it all. Like yeah. I, I do, I'm the only inker and I'm the only person that does the uh, special effects. Mm -hmm. And then she, uh, she's the main painter. I also paint cells and, uh, she runs the Xerox camera and paints maquettes and develops the projects. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're down to two people. Wow. And how long did that take? So it, it goes, what year does it go from 60 to four? <sighs> Three years ago. Wow. Three years ago, uh, Peggy Murakami retired. Right. And she was a master inker. Right. She's been in the company for, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And she retired about three years ago. So when she retired, then I became the only inker. Mm -hmm. yeah. So after like Mary Bell or um, some of the classic animators and, and background painters, she's one of those names that people who are familiar with, with animation art, they know her name. Yeah. You know, oh, she's yeah. in, and she was, she would draw backgrounds and stuff too, right? Peggy was mainly an inker. Um, mm -hmm. Not sure if she did backgrounds, but she, she did work on production mm -hmm. uh, um, on production projects. Just like Sherry Vandoli, she's still there. She did right. work on some of the films. Right, yeah. right. So now, fast forward three years after that point, and who's left? Just me and Sherry. Yeah. Yeah. And... Most of what you're doing now is the Saracel stuff. No Saracels. No Saracels. No. Sar the Saracels are done in another, that's another company. Right. We still do traditional inking and painting. Okay. The same exact thing that Disney did in 1940, we'll, we're still doing it. Wow. But what we do now, the main thing that we do now, we do two limited edition pieces a year. Right. Each edition is 250 pieces, mm -hmm. and these are only sold to employees. So it's became like our stuff, it does not go out to the public. Right. So now we create a, a piece of artwork that you will never see in stores. Right. And it's only available if you're an employee. Right. And if you want to buy one, you, you, just, you just can't contact us and say, I want to buy one. You have to enter a lottery. To be, get the ability to buy one. If you get chosen, then yeah. you're able to buy one. So it's very difficult to get our stuff. Right. This is a great message to every company in the world that what has Disney done? It's a, it's a question I don't have an answer to. What has Disney done to produce such a loyal employee base to the point that they have set up an industry of producing work specifically for them? For them. No other company has done that. No other entertainment company has done it. No other company at all has really done that. Where, I mean, can you imagine? I'm sure that Marvel has, of course, Marvel is is, um, is now a division of Disney, but they are. Can you imagine? I can't. <laughs> Knowing people who have worked at Marvel, the loyalty factor isn't really there. Mm -hmm. But uh, producing something for the employees, they'd be like, why would I want that? Because of the kind of rough and tumble nature of comic book publishing. It's just a very different mindset. And even though Marvel has such a great 
you know, and rich history of characters and stories that it hasn't connected with the people who make it. Like they, they took those jobs to take those jobs to have bills to pay. And now there's, there's been big discussions and we talk about a lot in the show about how little illustrators uh, at Marvel and DC get paid for, for drawing comics and why the market keeps getting smaller. And then the market gets smaller, not allowing to pay more money to people who would bring more people in. So there needs to be kind of a really grand idea person to come back in and find a way to say, hey, look, maybe we're going to lose, lose some money on this for a few years, but we need to build the brand back up. That's why I was really enthusiastic, actually, about Disney buying Marvel, because they do it right. You know, marketing-wise, not just to everybody else, but it's like people there drink the Kool-Aid, mm-hmm. and it's good Kool-Aid. I've been there. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've visited you at work, and... I've got other friends that work in different areas. When Dan Madigan was working over on the um, Hollywood Way lot, mm-hmm. uh, when they were doing, they were filing away cells. Like it was like a, a cell um, archive, and got to see some of the stuff from the show that didn't happen. You know, the feature-length adult animated uh, film that Disney was working on right around the time The Simpsons came out, and the decision was made. Someone beat us to the punch. Mm-hmm. So they did that. I think 10 or 12 minutes of that got animated and they just, they cut it. And it was like a three-year project. But that there was so much great stuff in the archive. I know that periodically when a new archiving format comes out, they go back and they reshoot everything for that new format constantly. Right. Sometimes they haven't caught up with the last format for everything by the time the new one comes out. But they complete it and then move forward. It's like it's, it's a well-oiled machine. And so when you're producing these pieces and you know it's going to employees, two things. Number one, it's got to put a little bit of pressure on you to make sure that it's really, really good because they know the material. Yeah. And you're producing something that other people that you work with are buying. So it's not like it's it's a bonus that they're going to be given. You know that they're paying their hard-earned cash. You get your check from the same place. And they love what you're doing so much that they're going to, spend money on it so that has to keep that i guess it keeps you frosty is you know the the saying that you might use that it it really keeps you on your toes as far as what you're producing like there's no way to phone it in but obviously with only two people i mean it's it's got to be a very interesting dynamic of working on these things too like is is there a, a friendly competition between you and sherry you know in in that office uh well she's been there Going on 40 years. Wow. So, um, yeah, she's, I've learned a lot from her. Mm-hmm. Um, Mason was like a negative zygote when Sherry first got hired <laughs> at, at Disney, producer Mason. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I don't see it as competition. I see her more as my uh, mentor, teacher. Cool. Yeah, because she knows it all. Yeah. You ask her anything about Disney. I mean, she's been there so long. Yeah. It's very knowledgeable. So I'm I'm trying to absorb and learn as much as I can mm-hmm. because she's going to retire soon. Yeah. Um she's going to retire soon, my boss is going to retire soon, and then Jim that runs the paint lab is going to retire soon. So I'm going to be left there by myself. <laughs> soon. I wonder, We're talking about like a few years a few from years now. now. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder does that mean that that you're the only person in the division and you're the guy that shuts the lights out when you leave? Or do you, are you going to get the opportunity to bring somebody in to replace one or two of those people? Well, there's there hasn't been serious talks yet, mm-hmm. but I have um, throw it, thrown it out there. My son's an artist. Your son's a very, very gifted artist, yeah. yes. And he, he already knows. I've been training him since little how to ink and paint. Yeah. So he already knows how to do it. He's not an expert on it, but he'll pick it up. He picks up anything. It is a different discipline. Isaac is a very uh, detail-oriented, fine illustrator in the tradition of a Bern Hogarth. Right. You know, in in that way. So it's, it's, for some illustrators, they may see it as a step back going to that hard line because it's such a different discipline. It seems easier, Mm -hmm. but of course it isn't. Yeah. You know, it's it's different. You flex different muscles. Um, It's not necessarily as detail showy, but it has to be perfect. Yeah. So that's going to be amazing. There's no room to like get, go to the left or right. It has Mm -hmm. to be right there. Inking, the, the intention behind inking is to translate the animator's feel Mm -hmm. and there's no room to. Yeah. There's no room for interpretation. There's no room for style. Exactly. Because the style has been established. I have to do what he is asking for. Yeah. And that, that puts a lot of pressure on on the inker. And if you if we're to extrapolate that example back to comic books, 
then you have to look at why the great anchors are considered great anchors and it's knowing what to leave alone it's knowing what to accentuate and you know terry austin is probably for most people the greatest anchor who has ever lived and some people would say that vince coletta was one of the worst because vince coletta would erase everything that he didn't want to work on mm-hmm. doing five or six books a month when pages were 32 pages each so do the math that's a lot of pages to ink yeah but um Certainly in the early years, and and even after Vince was no longer working on Jack Kirby pages, some pencilers liked having Vince Coletta do their work because he simplified to, the, to something that served the story, and that was what his discipline was. That when he started, there wasn't a resale in the industry for those original drawings. Mm-hmm. It was just about telling the story, and he felt like if there was something unnecessary in the page that it detracted from the telling of that story... Uh, Jack Kirby disabused him of that a little bit, but uh, it did serve for some younger pencilers, and it also taught them how to get faster. Like, oh, maybe I'm wasting time mm-hmm. on this, you know. And he was a journeyman, so I'm sure he probably worked on a lot of Sabusema stuff, which is very simplified. And, and maybe now we look at Sabusema stuff as not as good because it was simplified in the pursuit of telling the story efficiently not in presenting him his name as a celebrity artist or, you know, ego, which is a, an interesting way of looking at things. So we have mentioned that the, the division has changed titles a couple of times. So what's what's your title now? Um, anchor, painter, and head of special effects. Head of special effects. So in, in the animation division as head of special effects, what else is involved? Because it sounds like a job that it probably isn't. You no, know, it is. Um the main special effect that I do is airbrushing. Mm. So, for example, Tinkerbell's wings mm-hmm. are airbrushed. The glow around her is airbrushed. Mm-hmm. The reflection on some of the scenes. Um, any any smoke in any scene is airbrushed. Shadows, cheeks on Pinocchio, uh, glows. This is what takes something from a two-dimensional thing into a third dimension. Yeah. By giving a proportion and a composition to the character to other objects on the screen at that same moment. Mm-hmm. And so obviously invaluable. It's a thing that makes the animation good. Right. You know, the drawings are fabulous, but they're not lifelike unless there's a proportion and a composition that fits against a background in dialogue or in Congress with other characters in the scene. So that that is very interesting. And I guess a lot of people probably think that a lot of that is digital too. They think, but no. No, it isn't. No. And the crazy thing about it is that um, Walt Disney and his crew invented a lot of that when mm. while they were doing Snow White, but because they all those techniques didn't exist. The glow on Snow yeah. White is pretty spectacular. Yeah. And I haven't seen a lot of final cells for Snow White. I've seen a lot of production drawings I've seen painted backgrounds and certain cell overlays. And I'm wondering if sometimes over the years, some of that airbrushing on the separate cell, because it's another layer of the cell, it wasn't painted directly on, I don't think. Some uh, some is. Some is. Yeah, the majority is is another layer. But it's funny that you see how flat it looks when it's not there. Yeah. In a way, that's kind of what most people probably think about. If they know animation art, they think of that super flatness and they Mm -hmm. love it and it looks like an object you hang on your wall, which is why people collect animation cells if they love a movie. But that one dynamic missing and now that some stuff is done on a separate cell, that cell by itself looks like nothing. Right. But layered against what it was designed to go against makes the complete difference. Right. It's, you know, like like taking the bass out of a, a music track, mm-hmm. you know, or taking any instrument out that you are familiar with. But the bass especially because it matches the drum beat, mm-hmm. or it should, good bass playing, good drumming, should, should these guys should talk. Yeah. And if you if it pops out, if you didn't say anything about it, someone might hear that, that song that they know for maybe half a minute before they realize, oh, I know what's wrong, the bass is missing. And so when you look at animation and it's missing one element that you know it from, that gives it motion, honestly, this one, you know, this two-dimensional object, when done in sequence with this effect, gives the motion, gives the relatability, gives it the third dimension, that you don't even think about it unless you're familiar with it. And so it is that type of industry, you know, trade secret that made... Walt Disney's animation rise above everybody else's for 
70 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And now this isn't the only thing you do either. No. So, you know, it's, <laughs> all of us apparently hate sleeping, right? You know, we, we just have to stay busy. Uh, you also are curating fine art shows, yeah. uh, working at Disney helped open the door for you to start doing more fine art. Yeah, well, so what happened, uh, prior to me working at Disney, I had no idea about the fine art world. Mm-hmm. I had no clue about it. Uh, and and Disney uh, hosts uh, art shows for Disney animation employees. Mm-hmm. So then um, I hear about all my coworkers, they're participating in an art show. I'm like, what's that? So then I went to the reception. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Mm-hmm. Like, you get to create a piece of artwork and it hangs on the wall. People come and unrelated to Disney product, completely unrelated. Yeah, you can all the employees. Obviously, you can't um, create artwork that's uh, not appropriate, right? Because that's happened in the past and mm-hmm. it doesn't get accepted. But as long as it's appropriate, then you know it can hang. Mm-hmm. So I go to the art show and I get super pumped and inspired. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, I want to do this. So then I start. Um, um, developing the you know hyperrealism style with pencil, right? Because that's what I was attracted to, um, and then I started developing it. I started doing portraits, mm-hmm. and then I started showing them to uh, mainly my coworkers because mm-hmm. they're all artists, and some gave me pointers and all this. But I I got good feedback from it, mm-hmm. and then I picked up a couple commission pieces from my coworkers. So I got excited. Wow. So then I started working on a bunch of pieces and people I'm like, who went to art school are, are like cringing right now at this, <laughs> at this entire story, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I never, here's the thing. I don't have a high school diploma. Wow. And I don't have a high school diploma because, um, I had bad grades. Mm-hmm. It was a situation where, um, I grew up in Mexico and when we mm-hmm. came back, I was 16. And then when I went to high school, they put me, uh, on 11, 11th, 11th grade because mm-hmm. of my age. And then on my 12th, uh, on my senior year, um, I had a little situation. I had to go to the hospital. So I racked up a big bill. Mm-hmm. So I had to get a job. Right. So I got a job. Um, and then I was cutting fifth grade every single day. And that's the reason why I didn't graduate. Fifth period. Fifth period. Yeah. So then um, right after that, I got the job at Disney and I figured, you know, why do I need a high school diploma? This is amazing. So did you go get a GED at all? No, I haven't. Not even a GED. This is, I love this. (laughs) I love this. So there's going to be a room full of art center grads with bachelor degrees that are going to be applying to work for you. And this is a guy without a GED that runs a division. This is a a crazy thing that I've experienced working at Disney. Mm -hmm. I've, there's been thousands and thousands of people that have come through on tours Mm -hmm. and you're talking about people that went to college for years and they, they, when I started working there, you know, I looked very young Mm -hmm. and then they would ask me, Oh, like, so what college did you go to? How, what was the process of getting, you know, I went to Disney university (laughs) and I would tell them the story and they would, they would get depressed or pissed off. Yeah. Like what the F? And, um, so I've, I've, I've seen all that and, uh, people just get mad at me. Well, here's, here's where, here's where we match because I've, I've worked quite a bit in academia with museums mm-hmm. who contact me, you know, to help them put on a show. And then they're like, oh, well, you know, wh- where did you go to school? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have a degree. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I went to a lot of schools, <laughs> you know, I would go to, to an art school and I would sit in on a class and I would learn what I wanted to learn yeah. back when you could do that. Right. Now they take attendance. They never yeah. did. Really? And I used to go to art center in the early nineties and just sit in on and take classes, uh-huh. you know, and, and I'm sure there are, there are professors who, if they're still there, think that I graduated from art center. No way. I never paid them a dime. Really? And I did the same at Cal arts. That's awesome. And I did the same <laughs> at a few other schools. I think the only school out here I actually enrolled in was LACC and it was to get my hands on a Super 8 camera. Really? So I applied for a film class and had to take a couple other classes to get into the department that, that would hand out cameras. Yeah. And on that first equipment day, I was the first at the line. I checked out the camera and then just brought it back at the end of the semester. I didn't even go to the classes. No way. I had no interest in getting you know, a, a community college degree yeah. to, to transfer into, an art, into a film school because at that point I was already acting. Yeah. I was already working. And I was on the radio at that point. I was on the Ricky Rackman show and I was mm-hmm. taking a broadcasting class. I think it was Broadcasting 501 or something. I'd never taken Broadcasting 401 or whatever you know and and the kids in the class were putting together their tapes and i just bring in a tape of the previous night's program from mm-hmm. you know klsx That's i know awesome. it was uh what was it it wasn't klsx it was um 
the FM talk station, whatever the call letters were for that at the point, 97.1. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the professor's like, well, how do I grade you? You know, like you're already doing it. And I could tell that there were, you know, other people in the class that were like, hey, we've never even seen this guy in, in the, the two years of classes we took before. And here he is doing this thing. Yeah. And it did cause a little bit of agitation. But it's also like, you know, like you say, it's sometimes gate crashing is the way to the party. Mm-hmm. And once you're in, they realize, oh, you were supposed to be here all along. You know, yeah. we didn't know to give you an invitation, but you were supposed to be here. And that's cool. But I do occasionally, and, and I've talked at a boy, you know, Daniel Siffert, who um, who publishes High Fructose Magazine. Mm-hmm. He's also been in situations where they've put together exhibitions at uh, museums, mm-hmm. and the museum director was like, "Well, I can't put your name on this because you don't have a degree." And he's like, "I didn't call you up; you called me. Mm-hmm. You know, our names on this, yeah, or we walk." You know, and, and I've had to do that a couple of times with um, with certain exhibitions. And it's not about my ego. It's about getting the gallery name mm-hmm. onto that show. Yeah. Because, you know, that's I service the gallery. But uh, it, it makes me so happy. There is a certain chip on my shoulder about that. This, I would love to have a degree. I would love to have the opportunity to go back to college. I would love even more, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, an honorary degree. Mm-hmm. But um, I and I have a lot of respect for for academia. But at the end of the day, while a lot of people were going to school, I was already working, yeah. just as you were already yeah. working. Mm-hmm. Wow, man. So that, that's a, a really great place to wrap up the beginning of this. But I do want you to shout out the projects that you're working on independently. Mm-hmm. So um, where can people find you on social media? Uh, Instagram, uh, Palayo underscore productions. And spell that? P-E-L-A-Y-O mm-hmm. underscore productions. Um, that's where mainly I advertise the events that I produce. So the events that I produce, to make a long story short, mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 there's several elements to it. One is the concert part, and then the other one is the exhibition part. The exhibit part is obviously the main one because I'm a fine artist, mm-hmm. and that's my passion. And I started uh, producing the Day of the Dead event back in 2010 with the intention of exposing my friends that were aspiring artists that didn't know how to get out there. Mm -hmm. So then I'm like, all right, let me put together a show. And then I curated it and I brought them in. It was like 22 artists and it would, you know, we had like 500 people show up, Mm -hmm. sold about half of the uh, show. Mm -hmm. Which is incredible by the way, especially in 2010. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and then everyone just asked me, are you going to do it again next year? So I said, yes. Um, but I wanted, I didn't want to jump on the Day of the Dead bandwagon. Mm-hmm. So I wanted my event to be different. So I said, I want my event to uh, raise funds for different nonprofits that have to do with teaching arts to kids. Right. right. So ever since then, I've chosen a different uh, nonprofit. Uh, for the past few years, I've been doing it for Plaza de la Raza. It's a cultural center in East mm-hmm. LA. Yep. And uh, we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars since then. And your show is generally down there too, like in that neighborhood. Yes. Um, except for two of them, I took one to a museum in Mexico city last year. Awesome. Yeah. They, they contacted me and I, I curated it and I took it down there and then also Mola in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. I took my low rider event there this year. Right. So, uh, that's like two dreams come true since I started doing the events. I mm-hmm. want, I want to take them to museums and they called me. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's, like they call you. That's that's when you know you've, yeah. you've made it. You, you know that if if you're the guy that can be late to the meeting, that's a meeting worth going mm-hmm. to. I think that's a line from Swing the <laughs> Sharks. And so La Bula is, is coming up um, very soon. Yeah, May 6th. May 6th, and that's a Luca Libre experience. And so you've got art that's built around Lucha Libre, yep. and you've got, so there's going to be wrestling and music and art. Yeah. And you got Blue Demon Jr. Exactly. He's our main, uh, main uh, wrestler that night. Wow. And there's there's a bunch of talent. I mean, the, I'm looking at the flyer, and on the back of this is is a bunch of people that anybody who knows LA art, you know, they know people like Germs, you know, Jaime, and um, mm-hmm. there's quite a few people on here that are kind of like knock it out of the park names. And uh, we were talking, it's like I have to get involved in this next year. So uh, I would we'll, love for you to curate one yeah, of these shows. We'll do it, man. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that'd be um, awesome. We'll do the the Tokyo Los Angeles thing. That'd be awesome. Well, hey, man, thanks for coming in. This has been fabulous. Thank it's been a while me. a while to happen that we we've been trying to plan this, and then we 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 actually hard planned it to to start to happen, and we were able to do it today, and I'm I'm so happy about it. And I definitely want people to check out La Bula, and that's L A B U L L A, and it's going to be on Saturday, May sixth, and it's at Plaza de la Raza. And that's uh, on Mission Road in Los Angeles. So we're, we're talking about um, 
what neighborhood is that? that Lincoln, is Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. Mm-hmm. And um, also not too far from Pico Union, actually. Yeah, it's just up the street. And uh, an area where we've been talking about on the show where the neighborhood is pushing some of the high-end art galleries out because they don't yeah. want the gentrification. Yeah. And uh, I, I can understand mm-hmm. that for sure. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Thanks for stopping by. And I hope everybody has enjoyed this. This is, for me, this is what the show is all about. It's like, you know, be bold, push your way into the room, um, respectfully and be rewarded for for hard work but also for understanding the intuition one aspect that Antonio addressed uh, is knowing when to step down in order to step further like the fact that becoming an instructor had handicapped him from doing the thing that he wanted to do so he asked for sort of a demotion to get back the skill that he was supposed to be passing on so that he could excel at that one thing and I think that's a really important part of success it's not always a line that goes straight up or even you know when you look at the the charts where you've got something that looks like a mountain starting in the lower lower left and going to the upper right that there's a lot of peaks and valleys and knowing what the what the mood in the room is comes with experience it comes with um, observation and knowing what you want and knowing who you are and knowing what you're capable of. And I think those things more than any of the stuff that we talk about are, are really the keys to success. To success. So uh, anybody who has any, any comments or feedback about that, we want to hear from you. We want to see the comments on our Facebook. Go to uh, Pod Sequentialism on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter and on Instagram at PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. And you can send me an email, info at popsequentialism.com. I have been Matt Kennedy. This has been Pod Sequentialism, and we will see you next week. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.